you ever find yourself wondering if you have biblical joy or not? You ever try to kind of put your fingers on what that really looks like? And then when you ask others if they have joy, their definition seems to be different than someone else's. Well, this morning we're going to try to define joy from the Word of God. The title of the sermon this morning is Shared Joy. And as we begin our text here in 1 John chapter 1, we'll be introduced to this book that was written by the Apostle John, one of the closest to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4 this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You see, the author is not clearly stated in the book as we begin reading, but does give solid evidence by what is mentioned that it was written by the Apostle John. One way that we can clearly make the connection is the way that the book uses very much the same language that the Gospel of John does with words like the beginning, the word, light, eternal life, truth, new commandment, and the common use of the word love throughout the book. Early church fathers also supported that the Apostle John's authorship was stated here would have been Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Arrhenius. The book was written out of a fracturing of fellowship of the saints, where some had separated from others looking to create their own community. They found things weren't aligning, so decided to separate from others. There were serious points of disagreement. One of them was an outright denial of Jesus coming in the flesh, that Jesus was just a spirit. We see that in chapter 4, verse 2. Another one is a denial of the importance of Jesus' commandments in chapter 2, verse 4. And another one was also the denial of sin in their own lives, only in the lives of others, verses 8 through 10 in chapter 1. There are other areas that are mentioned that most certainly break fellowship in the body of Christ. We'll be dealing with some of these particulars throughout the epistle. Many breaks in fellowship, though, are self-inflicted wounds. They're caused by us doing something that severs the fellowship that we have with God and with the saints. And many times what ends up happening is when we're out of fellowship with God, we turn out to be out of fellowship with others as well. We're going to be looking at three things this morning. Number one, the incarnation of Christ, verses one through three, the first part. Number two, the call to fellowship, the, the second part of verse three. And number three, the life of joy, verse four. Number one, the incarnation of Christ, verses one through three. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. First of all, we see that recognition of the incarnation is the basis for fellowship, which will later be discussed throughout this book. First thing that John wants to put on the table as an important point of fellowship is recognizing the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus took on human flesh, the Son took on human flesh and retained his deity. Personal encounter here is emphasized. Look at the words, which was from the beginning. Notice the similarity with John chapter 1, verse 1. Very similar start to the book. The gospel, stress, the gospel of John stresses the eternality of the word, his deity. The epistle stresses the incarnation, his humanity. 
So John is giving us a balanced view of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one, the Gospel of John, he's given us the fact that Jesus is God. And in the Epistle of John, he's showing us that Jesus, who is God, took on human flesh. Beginning, the word occurs eight times in 1 John. In verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 7 of chapter 2, 13, 14, 24, it's mentioned twice in chapter 2, and then verse 8 in chapter 3. Each time it's preceded by apo, which is in context making the beginning of the start of something new in the point of time. Look at this phrase that he uses here, which we have heard. Which we have heard. It describes clearly the encounter that John had himself. The incarnation, by the way, is not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. It's not just a picture. It's reality. It's God taking on human flesh. He is not only a man. Jesus did not swap deity for humanity. Ebionism is the belief that Jesus was just a man and the Christ spirit came upon him. Serenthianism was also a false doctrine back then, stated that the Christ spirit came upon him at baptism and departed while he was on the cross. Restoronianism believed that humanity and deity could not coexist, which was also why it's called a form of Gnosticism. They couldn't be mixed in any way, so they couldn't coexist. The incarnation, by the way, is not a creation of a new person. The Son has always existed. Jesus, in human flesh, had a beginning. The Son eternally always existed and will always continue to exist. This is not a change in Christ's personality. This was also not a theophany, which many of us talk about in the Old Testament. He permanently changed his mode of existence. Christ retained full deity. He added humanity to his deity. This was not an exchange. He did not swap deity for humanity. He took on human flesh while also being God. Then the Apostle John adds we to this context. Notice that. And in adding we, he's speaking of the apostles, those that were around him during the time of Christ. Why can we trust these eyewitnesses? Well, here are are a few reasons. The Messiah of the Apostles, by the way, was different from what was expected. They originally expected a king that was going to overthrow Rome for them, that was going to give Israel its status again among the nations. What they received was a suffering servant. Apostles were incapable originally of calling a man God. Their upbringing would not have allowed it. From a Jewish background, they would have never agreed that Jesus was God unless they attested to this themselves. And one of the strongest reasons why is the resurrection. The apostles, in fact, did not expect it, right? They were terrified when Jesus went to the cross. Why did Peter even make the statement, don't go? What Peter didn't understand is what Jesus was telling him is I'm doing this on behalf of sinners. And I will rise again proving that I am God. Not just that I stand as a representative as a human, but that I'm also God and I have power over death. The apostles did not expect this originally. But for some reason... Every single one of them, with the exception of John, who we find writing this book, were willing to die for it. In the Old Testament, there are 191 messianic prophecies concerning the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's statistically impossible for only 48 to be fulfilled in one person. The probability is astronomical. Notice the phrase, we have heard. 
John was there with the apostles. He experienced this firsthand. John is saying, listen, I was there. I heard from Jesus myself. In fact, in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking. But when the Helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. From the beginning of Christ's ministry, the disciples, the apostles were there. They saw him perform miracles. They heard him with their own ears. Saw him with their own eyes. Which is why the next phrase says, which we have seen with our eyes. I didn't just hear, I also saw. In John chapter 20, verse 8, he saw and believed. In John 20, what we see there actually is that John first saw, then Peter saw. And then finally, John saw and believed. It's not enough just to see. Faith has to be activated. Many people see many different things. We have different experiences. But until that's met with faith, it's worthless when it comes to our faith in Christ. Which we have looked upon, handled, we examined and touched the physical body of Christ. You know who really could give a clear understanding of this? It's Thomas. To him, it was completely mind-blowing that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Mind-blowing. In fact, what is this statement? I won't believe until I touch, right? Until I actually get to see and touch. The word of life. The word referred to here is Jesus. Not the gospel message, not the word of God. The word referred to here is Jesus. In the Old Testament, the word of God always says something about God. Jesus was God's incarnate speech. The word in human flesh. And life here that's described is inherent in the word that Jesus personifies. He possesses life to an absolute degree. And he freely gives life to those who believe. How do we know that this is a reference to Christ, not the Holy Scriptures or anything else here in the text? Well, first of all, we see historical appearances of the incarnate Christ. Manifested, used nine times in 1 John. Nine times in the Gospel of John and twice in Revelation. All three of those books are written by the Apostle John. To show oneself. That's what the idea of manifest is. Bear witness. The object of truth. Show communication of truth. This is something that was evident. Eternal life. Though the word can have either a quantitative or qualitative meaning, John uses it most often in the qualitative sense. Thus Jesus is personified as eternal life. With the Father. The fellowship experienced by the Son with the Father is offered to the believer in this epistle. The union that the Father has with the Son is what John is inviting the saints to have. It's mind-blowing if you think it through. The very fellowship that the Father has with the Son is the very fellowship that God calls us to with Him. That is why we're adopted as sons. Number two, the call to fellowship. The second part of verse three. That you also may have fellowship with us. 
And he doesn't stop there. And truly our fellowship is with who? The Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Biblical fellowship is a union with the Father and the Son. And it is not to be dismissed. It is not to be littled in the church. You can have fellowship over many different things, but if you don't have fellowship with the Father and the Son, you don't have biblical fellowship. Fellowship, the idea behind the word is communion, participation, partnership. It's the very reason why we have the Lord's Supper. It's truly an establishment of fellowship. Once again, a picture of what God has done on our behalf. Common, shared. This term is used 60 times in reference to eternal life, making that an important point for us to consider as to what should unite us. We should not think of fellowship in terms of God needing us or our fellowship. God is perfectly satisfied with or without us. Unfortunately, a lot of people paint this picture of God as needing people to make him happy. The Trinity has always existed in perfect unity and bliss and happiness. The delight has always been there. God does not need us. But here's the amazing catch. He wants us. God does desire fellowship. He doesn't need it, though. This makes God weak to many people when they picture God as somebody that needs them. God does not need us. We need him. The Imago Dei, the distinction between communicable and incommunicable perfections of God. Things that God can pass to us as qualities and things that are exclusively His. The incommunicable ones are those perfections He does not share with His creation. Omniscience of God is not something He will offer any of us. You will never be all-knowing. He alone is. Omnipotent, you will never be all-powerful. He alone is. Omnipresent, you will never be present everywhere. He always is. The communicable attributes are the perfection shared in a limited way with his creation. The intellect, emotion, and will. These things make it possible for us to have fellowship with God. We are not merely robots on this earth. There are certain things that God has given us as tools that we ought to use in our relationship with him and others. In order to have fellowship, the capacity for fellowship must be restored. In the fall, the image of God was seriously marred in man. Sin broke the perfection, the completeness. Since the fall, man cannot know God. I'm going to repeat that. Since the fall, man cannot know God because of total depravity. We are steeped in sin. We are born in sin. We are spiritually dead. Total. It touches every aspect of our humanity. And if it wasn't for the saving power of God through the Holy Spirit giving us new life, not a single one of us would desire to have fellowship with him. We would be hiding just like Adam did any time that God would call us. Some important points regarding fellowship. Fellowship is something that we maintain, not something we create. Fellowship is something we maintain, not something we create. God has already brought us near through the Son. If you are a believer of Christ... You already have fellowship. It's important for you to maintain it. You can't create it. God already created it. 
He's the one that brought you near. It's up to us to maintain that fellowship. We can't create it, though. To fellowship, there must not be any obstacles or barriers. Believer, you need to understand that when it comes to fellowship with you and God, you should stop with your personal preferences. You need to realize who's in charge. Too many people cling to this idea that Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are there for them. No. You're there to glorify them. You're there to glorify God. Fellowship, there must not be any obstacles or barriers. Personal preferences, secret sins, all have a way of hurting the fellowship that we have with one another and with God. To have fellowship with someone, we we must both love the same things and hate the same things. A church can have terrible fellowship due to differences of priorities and neglect of truth. It's very obvious when there's not fellowship in the body of Christ. People have different views of what fellowship looks like. Some want the music turned up louder. Some people want more food on this day. All sorts of different standards of what we think fellowship is. And the fellowship that's spoken of in Scripture starts with our walk with God. And out of that outflow, we fellowship with one another. Which is one of the reasons why you can't manufacture fellowship. You can't fake it by putting on a certain kind of music that'll move your emotions. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's biblical fellowship now. Because we're all feeling a certain emotion together. There are churches that are united, but they're united around the wrong things. Just loving your neighbor by never calling out sin is not biblical fellowship. A lot of churches are doing that. Oh, we just love one another. We don't talk about what the Bible really says. I mean, it's kind of outdated on that. The Bible's got some good stuff. We love the love part. We're not going to define it the way God does, but we're going we're gonna to love that part. God doesn't want me to really call out sin too much because if I do, you know, it might come across a little hurtful at times. That's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is admonishing one another. Yes, it's encouraging one another. The Word of God is so powerful that it does all of those things in all our lives. It encourages us, comforts us, corrects us, strengthens us. It does all of those things. Biblical fellowship among believers can at times be difficult to maintain because everyone has a different definition of what they think it means. Some think it means just serious Bible exposition. Others think it's a worship experience. Others think it's a meal together with others all of which can be classified as fellowship, per se, right? It's things in common. But then the debate begins. Which one constitutes what John is referring to here? Because I'm going to be perfectly honest. As a pastor, I don't really care what my opinion on fellowship is if I'm trying to be honest with the Word of God. I need to go, what does God mean by fellowship? What is John referring to here? Not, what do I like, and let me bring it into this text and try to read it in. Because I'll tell you what I like when it comes to the word fellowship. It's very different than what you might like. Some of the things I like is just hanging out with people. I tend to think that's fellowship many times. I think God's driving for a lot more here. John's driving for a lot more here. We need to be aware of mysticism. You see, many Christians struggle between subjective and objective experiences. Mystical and biblical experiences are many times at odd with one another. Do you know that? And unfortunately, they're blended to mean the same thing at times in the Christian faith today. 
you don't know, I really felt. Um, if you're in a lot of sin and you don't care to repent, that's not a good feeling to think that's okay. Mystical experiences. Desi the desire to know God directly without the use of means. It downplays the intellectual in favor of the feelings. Desires to experience God directly through senses, then meeting him through the written word. I just want to feel God. I don't want to read this Bible. Why? Let me feel. It's the same feeling you might get from listening to anything on the, on the radio station. The only difference is you got some words about God in there, and you think that that's now you experiencing something with God. Goodness, patriotic songs move me. Is that the same thing? You ever watch a war movie? Doesn't it move you at times? The sacrifice that people make? Is that the same thing? There are folks that many times could care less about finding God in the scripture. In fact, it bores them to read or study. They just want the feeling. And I get it. Some of us, like, personality-wise, it's kind of the struggle, right? Some of us are more feelings-based. Some of us are, like, intellectuals, right? Some of us are so intellectual, we don't want to even feel at times. And some of us are so feelings-based, it's like, why put the time in to study? I'm not one of those. Listen, depending on which one you are, you need to realize that both are important in your walk with God. You just can't emphasize feelings as the starting point, because they'll lie to you at times. And that's why it's also important in your intellect to also pay attention to what you're reading, what you're studying. People that fall into the mystical experience claim to have personal revelation from God. God showed me, God told me. It's a very common phrase used. And then they'll make ridiculous statements about why God wants them to divorce from this person and marry that one, completely destroying the whole point of what God didn't say. They focus on God's work in them rather than Christ's work for them. So they're about the feeling that God's going to give them rather than what God has already accomplished and what he wants to accomplish in their life. As long as I can have a certain feeling, I'll feel better about the fact that I'm in sin that I don't really want to deal with. It's a very, very serious issue in the church today where a lot of worship music has tuned people out of dealing with sin. People feel a certain way, they leave church a certain way, feeling that high, and then return to their sinful pattern because that never was dealt with. Unfortunately, when people fall into mysticism, they do not possess a standard for fellowship because experience rules objective truth. As long as something felt right, it was. As long as you can qualify it with your feelings, it's correct. Which is why the church has strayed so far today. I felt like Paul was kind of wrong here. Like John's not really right about his definition of fellowship. Here's what I think fellowship is. And we all can fall into that trap. That's true for you, right? You ever heard of that? It's just true for you. Like the objective standard of the word of God, eh, that's just Paul's opinion. It's got some good stuff in there. You see, here's the truth, saints. We can experience fellowship with God as the saints in the past did. We don't need to find something new. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can go back to the word of God and see what they did to establish fellowship with God and with one another. As we fellowship with God, we become partakers and sharers in the divine life. We don't become divine, but we do partake of eternal life, the life that's found in Christ. Fellowship with God means that we have communion and discourse with him. The question that we should ask is when we think of fellowship in the church, do we have fellowship with God or with ourselves personally first? 
If you're trying to find fellowship with the saints while walking outside of fellowship with God, it's going to be a clash all the time. Fellowship can be looked at from a human and divine perspective. From the human perspective, God is no longer a force out there or a stranger. We enjoy his presence. God is not just some distant cosmic being out there. He's near and dear to us. We love being in his word. We love praying. We enjoy being around the saints who love those things. We're moved not just during a moving worship song, but when we are going about every single day, whether it's reading, praying, driving, talking, walking, we are moved by the fact that God has called us his own. And that's from the human side of things. From the divine side of things, God is at work in our fellowship. Believer, God determines certain things in your life because he wants to bring you right back to him in fellowship. And the very plans that you thought, man, God, you really messed them up. You did it for a reason. In our hearts, he's creating holy desires. We should pay more attention to how God is moving in our hearts towards conformity to Christ. Because that's where fellowship will take us. When we've backslidden, that's when our fellowship with God has been broken. And here's, a, here's an eye-opening thing that I've noticed in my life. When my fellowship with God is not strong, I start seeing a lot of things in people's lives that I want to sit there and go, you know what, it's not as, you know, they're doing worse than I am here. And the comparison game starts. And it isn't until I go back to the Word of God and go, you know what, God, I'm, I'm absolutely damaged and broken here. I'm, I'm really messed up here. I'm not doing what you want. Failing in this area. Father, I want that restoration again. And then by default, for some reason, man, that legalism kind of slips out. Starts kind of exiting. Start caring enough to be honest about my own sin. I have a proper view of how to deal with sin in, in people's lives around me. But we're quick to put the shields up, right? Like, let's, let's defend ourselves first and then, you know, deal with everybody else first. In verse 3, with us. John follows this with an explanation that he wants his readers to experience the same fellowship with God that he's experiencing. This is a joint effort. Here's the truth that every one of us needs to grasp. God is calling all of us as a church to experience joy as a community. Not just individuals. God wants us to have fellowship with him so that we have fellowship with one another in an experience of joy. Fellowship with God must come before we have the right fellowship with one another. If every member of a local church cared more about their fellowship with God first, they'd be better equipped to meet the needs of others, and they would enjoy fellowship with the other saints. It's when each one of us kind of has our own little thing we'd rather do that there's the disconnect. I know pastors encourage us to read the Bible. I don't really care to do that. I'm going to go do this other thing. Um, I get it. It would probably help, but I'm going to do something else. Church, I'm not trying to encourage you to get in the Word of God so that I have some notch on my belt. I'm trying to encourage you to get in the Word of God because I think that's the most important thing for our congregation. We can't have good fellowship with one another if we're going to make the Bible a priority for all of us. The fact that the early church found it so important that they would gather daily and actually talk about the teachings of the apostles all the time should tell you and I what matters. Warm feelings are good and important. They're important to have. But those can't be manufactured. They must be spirit-enabled. Sometimes people in the church have this 
I got to be nice to people who feel a certain way to them because I really don't want to deal with my own struggles. So I'm going to be so loving that I won't deal with anything. I just need to be nice and can't tell the truth because I don't want my own stuff exposed. I don't want to have to deal with my own junk and sin. One of the reasons why a lot of churches, they don't call anything out. Our tendency is to think that we can never reach the level of spirituality of the apostle and great Christians. The readers of 1 John had not had the first-hand experience of the incarnate Christ that John did. They had second-hand experience, meaning they knew John who had the first-hand experience. Yeah, he was still holding out the promise that they could join him in fellowship. In fact, 2 Peter 1.1, right? We have the phrase, like precious faith, right? There's a unity there, there's a fellowship there. It shows that believers have every advantage that the apostles had. The reason why you and I are not like Spurgeon or Paul or other missionaries is because we do not take advantage of the same resources. We simply don't. We want the amazing in our lives without putting in the effort that the saints did. We can only have this fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ. Fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter wrote that Christ suffered that He might bring us to God. And unfortunately, in our theological debates that people have, you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. What people miss in the relationship is that there are transactions that had to be made. Jesus had to pay for your sin. And there's a worship that is due. Not just a feeling. A true heart experience. The restoration was lost in the fall. I mean, sorry, the restoration of what was lost in the fall was what Jesus brought. Unfortunately, sometimes we end with the Son and forget that He is the mediator between us and God the Father. It isn't that Jesus just took your place. He said, here's the Father, I'm making things right between you and Him. The fellowship will be continually perfected in eternity as the Son brings us closer to the Father. Number three, the life of joy as we finish. Verse four. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John's saying, all this that I'm writing in this epistle is so that you have fullness of joy. Imagine if our church was marked by people that were full of joy. Fullness of joy grows out of fellowship. This is not a separate purpose. You find me a believer that's full of joy, they have fellowship with God and the saints of God. You find me a believer that has no joy, they are out of fellowship with God and the saints of God. It's impossible to have full joy without having fellowship. By the way, this is also not possible for the believer. This is a divine joy. This isn't a happy, excited response to a song. Divine joy goes beyond all of that. What it does not mean, though, is that we block out or ignore our problems pretending they don't exist. That's not what joy is. A lot of people that paint a smile on their face and think that's joy. That's not what we're talking about here. And I'm sure you've met people like that, right? Like they're positive and upbeat all the time. They don't even know the Lord, but they're always positive. 
That's not the joy we're talking about. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this statement. He says, Our Lord does not promise to change life for us. He does not promise to remove difficulties and trials and problems and tribulations. He does not say that he's going to cut out all the thorns and leave the roses with their wonderful perfume. No, he faces life realistically and tells us that these are things to which the flesh is heir and which are bound to come. But he assures us that we can so know him that whatever happens, we need never be frightened. We need never be alarmed. That's the kind of confidence joy gives you. We're not being asked to have a martyr's complex, by the way. This isn't like, hey, God, I want everything to go terrible in my life so I can experience joy. It's not what's talked about here. Rejoicing in all tragedies. It cannot be produced directly. This is something that God works in our lives. In fact, what's amazing is sometimes Christians put themselves in situations that will cause more depression and they wonder why there's no joy. This is not something we can conjure up by appealing to our emotions. Like, flip a switch, I've got joy now. That's not how it works. Fortunately, this is popular today. Worship teams whose job is to get people hyped up in excitement, which is then confused for joy. Believer, if that's your definition of joy, it will fall apart when you're on your own. Christian people ought to be the most joyful, but that does not always mean that we have to have a smile on our faces when we're going through life. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I picture Paul in prison, and I'm telling you, this is the picture. I'm like, this is not Paul writing his letters. Count it all joy, brethren. Philippians, I'm excited. I'm so glad I'm here. No. And if that's your picture of what joy is, get it out of your head. It's not biblical. Some pseudo-psychology garbage that we've pulled into the church. Every believer can and should be able to experience this joy, no matter the circumstance. Because joy is the byproduct of something else, believer. And that comes out of fellowship with God. It is not something you and I get to manufacture. No joy means there's no fellowship, by the way. If you're wondering, hey, I don't have joy in my life. I don't have a delight for the things of God. I don't have a delight in the sovereignty of God because God's got everything working and under control. Check your fellowship with him. Because another synonym for joy is delight. And it isn't a delight in everything going on around me. It's a delight in God who controls everything. Here's a point of encouragement. When trying to counsel somebody when there's a problem with joy, many times there's something interfering with their fellowship with God. So just be mindful of that, believer. When you're trying to help, help somebody and they're kind of in the depths of despair, realize that there might be something broken in the fellowship that's causing that. Matthew 5, we find the Beatitudes. Blessed. Blessedness comes from having the particular trait that he's discussing. Joy is the byproduct. God is the blessed God because of who he is. As a result, he is the happiest being in the universe in the truest sense. God doesn't need a sinner to make his day. He's fully satisfied with how he's made and created the world. And in the sending of his son, he proves that. He always has a plan even when we fail. 
In order for a person to experience the same joy as God, we must have the same character as he does. It means that we partake with him in what he encourages for us to do. Joy is independent of circumstances. You can have people that have joy that have everything going well in their life, and you can have people that have joy that have everything going wrong in their life. It's independent of circumstances. Eternal joy is permanently found in God who is permanent. It is always available to every child of God. God does not withhold joy if you want to fellowship with him. Joy is a state of complete satisfaction in God. You can't help but sing of how wonderful God is when you have joy. To be truly happy, we must be content in every aspect of our existence. If I'm satisfied intellectually but distressed emotionally, I'm not completely content. How many of you know in your mind what God says about certain things, but then emotionally you're like, I'm not feeling it. It's when those two meet that you can have the experience that God would want. Because you finally understand what it is that he longs for in your life. David was a man that understood God intellectually, but he also knew him experientially well, emotionally. When we turn off our intellect and only go off our emotions, we're prone to making false assumptions of joy with no verification from Scripture. That's one of the things that blows my mind is how many Christians don't read the Bible and somehow have biblical joy. It's not possible. You can't have divine joy in your life without being in the Word of God. As we know God, we can infinitely be satisfied in every area of our personality, no matter what personality we've been given. Joy involves the sense of exaltation. You'll see phrases like this in the Bible, rejoice and be exceeding glad. It's more than simple happiness the world pushes on every, us every day. Right? Be happy. Are you happy? I'm not happy. Joy is way more than that. Joy will produce within us a sense of strength only found in God's word. So in conclusion, church, is your joy full? Is your joy full? The reason many of us cannot say with certainty that our joy is full, because we're not even sure sometimes what that would really look like, right? And, and I want to ask for a moment as, as we finish up this morning, look back through your Christian life. When were the moments that you sensed the greatest joy in God. You enjoyed his presence. You were pleased with what he has done in your life. Many a follower of Christ has only gotten to know him on an experiential level initially when they were first forgiven for their sins. But their joy has been sabotaged because there's been no growth in the word of God and neglect of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Believer, Emotional experiences only get you so far when it comes to joy. You need more than that. You need more of the word of God in your life. And don't be satisfied with, I'm on my way to heaven, that's enough for me. God desires more for you and me. Growing in knowledge and understanding of God's word and prayer, which will then line up to his will. A lot of our experiential prayers are garbage before God because they don't line up with his word. They're a bunch of selfish, pitied prayers. Wine, wine, wine. Lord, please do this for me. And God is saying, I will do more than you could ever imagine if you wanted to have fellowship with me again. I will, I will satisfy every longing of your heart if you started with me first. 
I will answer prayers you never even imagined to pray if you started with me first. Putting on a smile or pretending everything okay is not joy, believers. Joy is not based on a personality type. It's found in Christ and in his presence. We're going to be enjoying God in eternity. Why do we not enjoy him now, believer? Maybe because all we've seen in the value of Jesus is an escape out of hell. That abundant life that Jesus promises is found in him. It's not found in, I want all of this in heaven, but I don't want him. Believer, what longing do you have when you think of glory? If Jesus isn't one of those things, you have the wrong Savior in your mind. A loss of joy is usually experienced by those who have strayed from the commandments of Scripture and many of whom struggle with spiritual depression. tell you, believers, from the bottom of my heart, the reason I love the book Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones is not because I think I need to just read it all the time, but because I go there many times. And I need to see for myself, once again, the areas of my life that are falling apart again. This last year was very difficult. I, I mentioned this to quite a few folks, including some last night. I probably have never understood the word anxiety until last year. Well, I've stressed before. I've been overwhelmed before. But last year, for some reason, I understood what the word anxiety meant. Like literally catching my breath, feeling like my heart's irregular at times. Loss of joy many times is experienced because we stray away from the things of God. And some of it can be so minuscule, it seems like, in our minds, but as simple as, you didn't prioritize me, you prioritized the ministry I called you to. You were looking for results in all the wrong places. You didn't want me, Roman. You wanted a better life. And it's in those moments that God brings us back to himself. If that's you, there's hope, and that hope is found in the face of Christ. Restore that fellowship, and joy will be restored as well, believer. If the fellowship's broken, joy is broken. As the psalmist said in Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life. This just moves you when you read what David writes. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 